Hello, and welcome to the All Bets Are Off podcast, a gambling addiction recovery podcast brought to you by those with lived experience. If you're here and having difficulties with gambling, please reach out. There are plenty of people on your side. There's a comprehensive list of support services over on our website, www.allbetteroff.co.uk. It's now time to crack on with the pod. Hello, Brian here, and welcome to the final episode of season three of the All Bets Are Off podcast. I feel slightly, slightly sad saying that actually. Um, today is a little bit of a peculiar one. Now I understand that it has been Chris and I who have undertaken most of the recordings this season. That's because Kish has been busy doing a bunch of things regarding research and the call for evidence, and Tracy has had a few things going on privately. So when we were let down by a couple of celebrity guests for the final episode, Chris and I got together and conjured up something which we thought would be interesting for people to hear, especially those who are contemplating recovery or in the early stages. So what we did was to interview each other's family members. Now, Chris spoke to my partner, Rosa, and later in the show, I speak to Chris's two brothers, Mike and Ian. Now, this episode isn't meant to be self-fulfilling or in any way shape or form we called this episode the difference in people because we really want people to hear how you can evolve in recovery build bridges gain trust and rekindle fruitful relationships with loved ones and although things can sometimes be tough remember that they have seen a big difference in you too without further ado let's crack on with today's show and it's chris and my other half rosa I'm really, really delighted to be joined by an amazing lady today. It's Rosa. Now, Rosa is Ryan's much, much, much better half. Um, so Rosa and Ryan started dating back in late 2016, I think, and they made that official in early 2017. So that will mean, actually, Rosa was with Ryan during some of the addiction. In fact, the latter stages and possibly some of the worst. And now, obviously, in this first just over a year of his recovery. So nice to have you on the All Bets Are Off podcast today, Rosa. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. No, it's fantastic to have you on and nice to be chatting to you instead of Ryan for a change. <laughs> I'm sure he'll love that. <laughs> got to tell the truth, got to tell the truth. I guess let's just have a little start back there then. So 2016, you and Ryan met. Do you want to tell me a little, a little about that and how this romance blossomed? Yeah, sure, why not? So um, I'd recently moved to Slough um, for work and uh, Ryan's living kind of nearby in Eatonwick. And uh, I thought I'd give the old uh, online dating a go. Um, so yeah, we, we met on one of those wonderful apps um, and kind of got, got chatting quite quickly. And, and Ryan was quite straight to the point and was like, you know what, should we meet up for a drink? Um, and we did. And, you know, I thought he was very, very easy to talk to. And like the conversation was just just flowing. So yeah, we kind of, I was kind of going a lot back and forth between, you know, where, where I'm from in South London and Slough. So we saw each other kind of sporadically, went to a, an Aston Villa game or two quite early doors and then yeah I guess Ryan says we made it official in January I think I'm still waiting for that official uh official line but yeah no we've been we've been strong since since then I'd say 
Um, so yeah, no, that that's kind of like a bit a bit of the backstory. Good stuff, good stuff. Well, I imagine it was made official as soon as you'd been to that Aston Villa match. To be honest, I think I think in his mind, I'm guessing that that was the case. Yeah, I reckon that was it. But maybe he'll make it totally official after this recording. We will wait and we will see. Potentially, uh, <laughs> I guess. I guess from me, I'm interested to know uh, when you met Ryan. Did you have any idea about the gambling? You know, I, I think from talking to Ryan in the past, he said to me that he thinks you had an inkling that he gambled and maybe you'd once been in a bookmakers with him, I think, from memory. But he felt that you were a little bit uncomfortable in there and that. I mean, what what was your, what were your feelings? Did you know that Ryan was a gambler at that time? Yeah, I guess like from from very, very early on, I knew that he was a keen poker player. Um, I know he played weekly down the local club. I mean... From my understanding, it was, you know, like quite low stakes um, and it, it, he kind of never let on it was something to be concerned about. I mean, it was something from my perspective that I knew very little about. And to be honest, when I when I hear people talking about gambling, it's very outside of my comfort zone, outside of my knowledge. And it, I wouldn't say it made me feel comfortable. I think, you know, even from early on, it was like a bit like not really sure about that kind of element. But um, he never kind of gave me any indication that it was something to be to be overtly worried about. I think one of the first Aston Villa games we went to, that would have been in the in the January. I think we went to see QPR. Uh, we were on the way to the game and he said, oh, you know, I need to let's have a pop in to the bookies. And, you know, he would have placed a bet. But, you know, I've, I've been in bookmakers with Ryan, you know, on, on several occasions, not not often. But um, as I say, because I don't really know what I'm doing, I think I kind of just let him get on with it. So I wouldn't have been able to tell, you know, how much he put on or or anything about that kind of betting experience. But as I say, it wasn't something that I was very, very used to or or very comfortable with. I often tell Ryan when I was a student, I used to work for a, a company that kind of they employ 18 and 19 year olds. And they go around and they make sure that, you know, betting companies and, and places serving alcohol and cigarettes um, ID people correctly. So I did that job a couple of times and had to go into bookmakers um, where I was a student in Sheffield. And I think I stuck out like a sore thumb. You know, I went on, I, I think I spoke to a flatmate. I said, what what bet shall I put on? And he gave me a football bet and I walked in, you know, flowery skirt, uh, you know, young, young female. And I think I even put the bet on wrong. I didn't know what I was, you know, I didn't know what I was crossing. So the woman actually had to say to me, you, you filled this in incorrectly. You're going to have to do it again. So that's that's how little I know about kind of that that side of things well to be honest you know when I first went in a bookmakers I was the same you know I was the same I didn't know what to do apart from the flowery skirt of course I wasn't wearing a flowery skirt but I didn't know I didn't know even but you know there was something about it that hooked me and uh, and I learned how to do that stuff and uh, yeah I mean it's very interesting that you had that role that you would go in the shops and check their ID and properly and that kind of thing and yeah I think I, I guess... only did a bookies once or twice I did uh, I think I put a bet on Eurovision and one on the football, which was pretty much dictated to me by a housemate. But yeah, that's hilarious because Ryan loves Eurovision. I think he's got three t-shirts, and he's got a Eurovision one, an Aston Villa one, and a Louis Theroux t-shirt. As far as I remember, I think that's about it. Sums him up quite well, I'd say. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. I mean. I don't think there's any reason why you would have thought it's weird that Ryan's going into a bookmakers on the way to a football match. That's pretty, pretty normal. People do do that, don't they? But I think what's interesting is about 18 months prior to that, probably, 
you know, Ryan was feeling suicidal, but he wouldn't have mentioned any of that to you. And I don't suppose, or was there, was, did you have any kind of inkling about what had gone on in the past at that point? Um, no, absolutely not. As you say, in terms of Ryan's mental health, would have had no no indication and, and didn't really know about that side of things until much more recently, until he's come into recovery. Um, in terms of being concerned about, about his gambling, I'd say like in the early stages of our relationship, absolutely no indication whatsoever. I think a little bit later on, it's really hard now looking back on it to put kind of time scales on things. But I think at some point I was made aware that a previous partner had had concerns about Ryan's gambling and had kind of encouraged him to go to, to GA in, in the past. And I kind of picked up on that and, you know, asked him about about that experience. And, you know, he said for him that it wasn't it wasn't kind of like helpful and he didn't find that particularly group, you know, I don't think it worked for him. It was kind of the way that he put it. But I think he was always quite keen to put those conversations to bed almost. Didn't really want to go go into it too much. And I guess how did that make you feel when you heard that he may have had these problems in the past? And equally, how did it make you feel when he was saying, well, that's not really for me? You know, like, did you did you just think he's probably all right now? Or did you think in your back of your mind, oh, is there, is there something I should be worrying about? Yeah, I think that we've probably had like, not many, a couple of conversations over the course of the our relationship about it. I think the first time I was a bit like, a bit taken aback about kind of, about that that past and maybe the fact that I should be a little bit concerned. But I, I, I didn't really know where to start, to be honest. But I think he, Ryan was quite good at reassuring me that it wasn't an issue. And that it was something that was very much in the past and that uh, the way he always explained it to me is that he was he would probably always gamble, but that it wouldn't be, you know, kind of like on a small scale. I'm trying to think of the way the way he used to say it, the way he put it. But yeah, he was quite good at reassuring me that that it wasn't a massive thing. And it was just like a part of his personality that that he would put those those small bets on or, or play poker. Um, on a Thursday. It's an interesting one with somebody like Ryan because obviously he did play poker and you know at times he actually did relatively well and enjoyed the poker but it wasn't the poker then that led to all the other issues it was all the money he's then losing on all the other bets so as we know you know there's lots of different ways to gamble and some of them are going to cause you a lot of harm and then once you're getting harm from one type it's best not to do any of the others as well so I think that's one of the saddest things as well because I think that the weekly poker was such a, a, a big part of Ryan's social life. And there are people that he, you know, would, would, would catch up with and, and hang out with that he, he knows now that he can't do it and he can't go there. But he's almost lost that kind of, you know, within the, the community, the village that he lives in, he's kind of lost that that network. So I know we've spoken, myself and Ryan, about what he can almost do to to fill that and, and to kind of do something that's an alternative. I know like with COVID, it's, it's difficult but I think like for Ryan, he's, he, he likes strategy. So almost like having something that, that isn't poker and that isn't gambling that he can do instead to kind of keep that side of his brain active and, and engaged. But we've, we've not yet found it. But yeah, always thinking. Oh, but that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because when, when, when we stop gambling, we need to find things to do to fill the time. And actually, if you've got a mind that acts in a certain way, you want to find something that makes you feel like you're using your mind and not just saying, well, I've stopped that, so I'm going to go running. Now, running is a great thing, but actually it won't be doing anything with that strategic part of your mind. So, yeah, that's a really, really interesting one to hear, actually. I know, I mean, it'd be nice to maybe talk about what you know about Ryan and his past as well, because I think from relatively early on in your relationship, Ryan kind of spoke to you about his family dynamic, how it was a little bit unusual, um, especially the issues with his mother, for example, and the abuse that he had lived through as a child. 
And I think you know that had a lot of impact on him. And I'd be really interested to know what you feel about that. Because I know now, I know like Ryan is great with kids and stuff. And he, he really, really loves them. And I think, do you feel there's something like around he doesn't feel any other child should go through what he went through and all that kind of stuff? Very, very interested to hear your thoughts in this area. Yeah, I mean, it's a, I guess it's a, I think it's impacted Ryan massively. And I guess what, what I knew about his family dynamic, it kind of, it, you learn a little bit more as you go, don't you? But I think quite early on, I said, you know, one of the questions is, you know, how's your family? How do you get on with everyone? What's the setup like? And, you know, I think our families are very, very different. I had quite like a, I would say like quite an easy, quite a sheltered childhood. My family are very close. Um, you know, he would have met my parents fairly early on. But I remember asking him about his and, and he said, look, I don't, I don't really talk to my mum. And, you know, that, that's, that's quite shocking, I think, immediately. And you, you instinctively want to know more. But obviously, fairly early days, I think Ryan was, you know, didn't want to give up all of that information to someone that he'd only relatively recently just met. But kind of over time, learned a little bit more about about his kind of his background and, and his family and his, you know, his growing up. Yeah, I mean, it's, re it's really, really difficult. I don't know quite how much Ryan would want me to go into to all the intricacies of it. But um, yeah, I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, Ryan did suffer some physical abuse um, at the hands of his his mum's partner at the time as a child. And I know that he's had a lot of issues around anger, um, especially in his teenage years. And yeah, I, I think he's, he's done amazingly in, in terms of, you know, he, he doesn't really have that side of him now. But if you talk to family members, I've met kind of Ryan's auntie and uncle and stuff who are lovely. But they, they the way they even kind of talk about things in the past, it's quite scary. And I think when I kind of heard about that, that side of him, it, you know, it, it is, it's worrying. I also know that, that Ryan kind of left home quite early, um, 16, 17. He was, I believe, living in a, in a garage or a shed for a short period of time and then, and then in kind of like rented accommodation. So I think he's had to do a lot for himself and learn a lot on his own, um, you know, where a lot of us might have the, the support and guidance of our parents. I don't think Ryan had that. And I think that's that, that impact is huge. I know some of Ryan's earliest experiences of gambling were kind of in those those early years when he was 17, living on his own, you know, maybe getting a wage packet, you know, a decent wage packet for the first time. I know he was an intern um, and he talks about, you know, a time where he, he went into a, a betting shop and basically spent his entire monthly wage in a very, very short period of time, but I think also won it back. So it was kind of like a, an early positive experience of, of what gambling can do. And I think, I think its path was really set from there, to be honest. Um, yeah, so I don't really know what, what more to say on that one. But I can really f feel that, as you say, it lost the money, won it back. There's nothing, it, it sounds crazy, but you know, in my mind, that feeling of losing everything, the desperation, then getting it all back, is the most amazing feeling that a gambler could have in my mind. It isn't about winning a load of money. It's about getting back to even when you've been so far down, which is crazy because actually all you've done is you've you've put yourself through loads and loads of stress just to get back to where you were in the first place. But then that tends to hook us back in and, and make us need to do it more. But no, certainly I remember listening to one of the other podcasts in this area I'm not sure which one it was. I want to say it was all in, but it might have been another. Um, and Ryan was talking about sleeping in that garage and stuff. And it's incredible, you know, what he's gone through. So, and, and you can see, you know, all of that will have had a massive impact on him. So all, all strength to what he's been through and to what he's doing now, and that amazing recovery. Um, 
also, I mean, another thing, I know that Ryan would have been kind of really ashamed of it at first, and and I guess he would have tried to protect you from it, but now he'd been stealing money from people and all that kind of stuff. And I know when that kind of stuff came out, that would have been a really, really big shock to you because actually Ryan has said to me in the past, and I think he said it widely as well, that you were kind of, when he met you, he was like, this is the one. This is the, Whereas other girlfriends he'd used and he'd kind of, I think he said in our pod as well in the past, he'd kind of pigeonholed people and say, like, that person there, if I, I could actually get money from them, so she can be my girlfriend, that kind of thing. Whereas if you, it was he wanted to be with you, Rosa. So he felt very, very ashamed of this stuff. But, you know, how did that make you feel when you found out about the money? Yeah, I mean, obviously a, a massive shock. There was a lot to kind of unpick, like, very, very quickly. I think it probably took about a week for Ryan to fully open up about what, you know, what was happening, what had gone on. And it, it took me a lot, lot longer to kind of, like, unpick it all. I think at the time there was, like, there were so many competing different things. There was, like, there was my shock there was almost like, as, as we say, like Ryan was at his rock bottom. So I was trying to do what I could to support him whilst almost like trying to battle with everything that was going on in my own mind and my own kind of shock and, and upset. And, you know, I'm, I think there was a little bit of anger in there as well, which I don't really think I ever was able to express because I was almost more worried about, you know, his well-being and how he was doing. Um, so there was a lot of, you know, a lot of competing emotions. Obviously, like Ryan's family were, were quite involved in a lot of these conversations. And I kind of liken it. I think Ryan really struggled to almost rip that bandage off and talk about everything all at once. So I think for me, things came out day by day. So on the first day, you know, I knew that um, someone in his family had gone into some bank accounts and had kind of discovered some things that that Ryan didn't want discovered almost. But um, even at that stage, I don't think I understood fully what that meant. Um, you know, for a long time, like Ryan's lived with his nan and, and she's really supported him and in lots of different ways, you know, financially and emotionally has provided him with somewhere to live and, you know, make a fresh start down south is, is how Ryan often refers to it as but yeah uh, I think you know I've often tried to have conversations with Ryan around you know what he owed to who and you know the extent of his debt and you know if we think about myself and Ryan moving forward with our lives and our relationships and you know even just renting a place together you know for me is you know highly possible I live in, in rented accommodation at the moment but for me to go 50-50 on a one-bed flat would, would cost about the same for me as it does to live where I am. And obviously I'd get the, the added benefit of living with Ryan where I think in the past he's always been really keen to like move forward and start a family. And in my head, I've never been able to compute why that doesn't happen because he almost wants to push it, but he you know, almost can't because of the, the, the financial element. Sorry, I don't know where I was going with that one. <laughs> well, actually, that's an interesting one because what I was going to say on there was obviously when you met Ryan, he was obviously earning money. He didn't appear to have many outgoings, yet he probably didn't have a lot in your mind. You probably saw him for why has this guy got no money? I don't know. I mean, what were your feelings around that? Did it make any sense? Yes and no. So like, I th you know, quite early on, as you say, it doesn't, it doesn't all add up. And I think, you know, Ryan was... It was always quite embarrassed. He would often say, oh, you know, I, I can't afford to do this or I can't afford to do that. So I think at some point he felt the need to explain himself. So what I was always told um, is that Ryan had had a run in with um, basically the tax man and he owed a, a, a large sum of money to um, HMRC. 
And I think there has been, an, uh, you know, a time, some sort of previous employment where uh, maybe some tax wasn't paid and, and, and Ryan did need to make that up. But I think that that was uh, basically the, ex- the the amount of money was massively exaggerated and it kind of gave him a, a get out almost a, or like a this is where my money's going. So we would always say like, OK, this month's really tight because most of my monthly wage is going on paying HMRC. And I think that was the way that he managed to stop me asking any further questions. And, you know, obviously I, I feel I feel a, a little bit embarrassed and maybe a little bit guilty about not pushing that any further. But I think Ryan was always quite good at changing the conversation or making me feel uncomfortable enough that I didn't want to pursue it any further. And there was a period of time, I can't remember when this was, but he made me aware that he'd actually come to the end of that of that um, that agreement. And I was like, wonderful, this is brilliant. Thinking in my head, this is this is going to give us the opportunity to to move forward. So it was probably about six months before he came into recovery, maybe even less, actually. I think with COVID, everything's a little bit muddled in terms of timescales. Um, and I said, you know, have you got, I think I did a little bit of research as well, you know, did, have you got a certificate to prove that you've, you know, you've done all this, like really excited, like, have you paid everything off? And it kind of avoided all of those questions, but as it as it transpires that that hadn't happened at all i can imagine just how awkward that felt for ryan at that time um obviously you know it was all lies and when when we're telling lies this is what comes back to bite us and that's why it's so horrendous being in this addiction um but actually i do remember ryan saying that although he didn't take lots of money from yourself rosa there were times that he did try and tap you up every now and again and i, I i'd really like to know what you felt about that and did that annoy you or mm, i think feel? it like it was gradual and i think one of the things that you know people that are close to me and my family and friends would be worried about is is this kind of element and you know he he ryan's never borrowed any any large sums of money like he might have done from um, payday lenders or, or or other people in his life I think the first couple of times he approached me as I say it was always really awkward about talking about money and I think he felt quite ashamed and embarrassed but it was it was small amounts 50 pounds 100 pounds and there would always be a reason you know because because these payments that had gone out this month were large or um, you know he had a couple of things that he needed to buy or he maybe needed to buy a gift for someone and for me it, re- it really wasn't a problem you know it's a small amount of money someone that I care about and yeah, and he would pay it back. Um, I think as as time went on, I would say he might ask for a little bit more um, and that he might take a little bit longer to pay it back. Um, but again, like I, w- I was quite keen that this wasn't going to become like an issue in our relationship. And I didn't want, I never wanted money to be like a, a problematic kind of conversation. So I would always try and maybe wasn't as organised as I should have been, but try to write it in a note on my phone or try and write it down somewhere where, you know, we would both remember or we would, there would be like a clear way of knowing kind of what had happened. But yeah, as I say, as time went on, I'd say he was probably not as good um, at paying back on time. And I might have to say, look, Ryan, you know, I lent you that hundred quid. Like I'm, I'm a little bit tight this month, like any chance that I can get it back. And, you know, generally it, he was OK with it. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, what I will say is I probably could have lent him more at times. But as I say to you, like, um, I, do, I didn't want it to become awkward or difficult. So there was a couple of times where I said, look, you know, I'm a bit tight. I can give you this. I probably can't give you any more. And and again, there were probably times where I said, look, can I have it back? When, when I maybe didn't need it, but I just wanted to, to maintain some boundaries. Because as I say, like, I didn't know 
anywhere near the extent of, of Ryan's issue with gambling. I did know that he wasn't good with money. Um, that was always quite clear to me. Like, he, you know, whether he'd been in a lot of debt or maybe he just wasn't as confident in terms of like managing things. Um, yeah, I just wanted I just wanted it to be like as straightforward as it could be regarding myself and him. Good stuff, good stuff. I understand that money relationship thing because even before I gambled, because obviously I didn't gamble until I was 30, so... But before that, I didn't like money. I don't, and, and actually got to a place where gambling was an easy way for me to get rid of money in a way, you know. So it's, it's very good for that. And yeah, money and relationships are a difficult thing. But it's glad, I'm glad to hear kind of the way you were putting your boundaries and stuff in place. That's that's really really good. And I guess just before we start to talk about the recovery and and then the future, at the time you found out, I guess I'm really interested to know how that really made you feel. And also, what did you do to? You obviously helped Ryan. But what did you do to help yourself? Mm, that's a really good question uh, so how did I feel at the time I was just overwhelmed to be honest um it was it was such an interesting time as well like it there was so much going on in the world so when Ryan first kind of initially started talking about it and when when people in his family found out what was going on it was the Friday before we went into lockdown so when I say like a lot was going on, like people were talking about whether we were going into work, we were talking ourselves about what we were going to do um, as a couple, because I wasn't sure whether to potentially go and stay with my parents in London before we got locked down. I wasn't sure whether I should be um, maybe moving in with Ryan, whether he should be coming in with me. There were like so many questions to kind of like unpack. I just felt completely out of my depth, to be honest. I I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to turn to. I didn't really feel like I could talk to anyone because Ryan was so ashamed of what he'd done and, and the position that he was in. I didn't feel like I could turn to my family or my friends because he he didn't want people to know unless they absolutely needed to. So, um, yeah, I would say that I was in was in quite a tricky spot. But as I said to you previously, I think I just you just have to keep going, don't you? You have to try and stay calm. So Ryan was in a, you know, a, a really bad spot, I'd say, in terms of his mental health. So it was just a lot of kind of like, it's going to be okay, we'll, we'll make this work, like we'll sort it out. But I know even some of the times that I was saying that to him, I didn't know what was coming next. Um, you know, like I remember saying to Ryan, you know, you need, you need to just tell me everything. You need to tell me the full situation so that we can we can work through this and get our heads around it. And there was one particular time I think we'd arranged to to meet up with some of Ryan's family members to really talk through kind of what happened and what, what the next steps were. And it was only on the way to that meeting that Ryan told me about a large sum of money that he'd borrowed from an ex-partner. Now, so when I say we were ripping off that bandage gradually, that's really how it was. It was like one day I'd get one little bit of information and the next day I'd get another bit of information. And it just seemed like it, it was never ending. But, um, you know, I'd like to think that now that I have the full picture and, you know, th th there's a lot in there. In, in regards to myself, um, that's a really, really good question. I feel like um, I've now been able to talk to my family and friends about what's happened. To be honest, that was a lot, lot later down the line. Um, and it was only really at the point where I think Ryan was feeling a bit more comfortable in himself. And I think he's taken a lot more ownership of you know of of what he's done and what he's and what he's doing in terms of his recovery now um, he's quite open with my parents about you know the podcast what he's been doing and you know like things like he's done like the big step and i think they're really happy to be 
to be kind of in the loop as well because I know they were really worried about me essentially initially when they found out. And rightly so, you know, they've got to be worried about their daughter, haven't they? And actually people who haven't been affected by a gambling addiction aren't going to have a clue what it means other than the fact you're going out with somebody, you might have a long-term future with somebody who has a problem that nobody understands and could lose all the money and then not be able to afford a house and they might have terrible mental health. Of course they're worried, but I'm so glad that that Ryan has been honest with them now. Um, about When you talk about the bandage, um, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because Ryan's obviously trying to stop the pain for himself too much, but actually, as somebody who's going to support him, you need all that and it's going to weigh on you very heavy if you get it all in one go. But equally, a little bit at a time doesn't help because you don't know where you stand. So I'm glad you've got all that now. I'm glad you've got all that. It does bring us on to a little bit like where we are now, though, or, or where we've been in the last year, I suppose. So since since finding out, obviously, Ryan went on Twitter and he called himself Ruined Gambler at first. And that's when I first kind of um, made contact with Ryan. And very quickly, yeah, very, very quickly, he put himself out there on this podcast, and which isn't something I guess a lot of people do, you know, because a lot of people do not want to tell people at first. Um, and I'm glad that Ryan done that because it just shows how... You know, there is a stigma around this stuff, but it doesn't need to be. Get out there and talk. And actually, there's a lot of us who go through um, this addiction. It get, You know, it's totally indiscriminate. It can get anybody. Um, but anyway, so we started this podcast and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just really, really interested to know um, how you feel about that. How do you feel about that last year? What Ryan's been doing with the podcast, with Talk Gen, everything else in his life as well. Yeah, I mean, it's really been incredible to think that it's only, it's just over a year really, isn't it? And I think one of the first things that Ryan did, and I think this goes back to, to to what he's good at and what he likes doing, is he wrote everything down. And he wrote everything down, I think, initially on a, on a blog. And I remember that being incredibly difficult to read. I remember him saying, like, we weren't necessarily, we weren't seeing a lot of each other actually at the time because of COVID, which was obviously incredibly difficult. All of this was going on and we were having, like, some quite big conversations over the phone or you know not face to face and actually I think that a lot of those conversations that we needed to have early doors we probably didn't because they were they were difficult but reading some of that stuff was like was very like hard hitting but I think it needed to happen and and Ryan's always been a really good writer and he's always been really good at putting his thoughts to paper um prior to all of this he was doing quite a lot of stuff around Aston Villa so it was quite a nice little transition for him to blog about football and then and then, and then blog about his experiences of gambling um there's there's been a couple of things really I think first of all is just just the openness to talk about money like it's really really sh- like it's a complete difference you know from as I said earlier like doing everything he could to steer the conversation away from money um to like literally being like this is my spreadsheet this month I'm going to give you this because I owe you this little little bit and I'm going to do this and I'm going to pay this debt to this and literally and sometimes I can't even keep track especially if I'm not looking at the spreadsheet but it's great because he's he's breaking it down he's talking to people about what he's doing before payday the day before he knows his money's coming in he's already allocated where everything's going um so that fills me with a lot more confidence even little things about you know when we're spending money together I think one of the things that we probably let slide a lot you know in in Ryan's um addiction was you know we maybe go into a shop in the week and I and I'd just pick it up I'd be like you know it's a tenner it's 20 quid it's whatever um but he would very very rarely you know pick that up or or pay half or whatever and you know it's a small amount but I think it was just those little things that that never really got kind of divvied up or whatever whereas now Ryan's using Monzo like literally the second we walk out the shop 
will either, you know, if I've paid, he'll be like, we'll split it with me. And like, he's very, very on it financially. Um, and it just feels like a lot easier. And it's not something that we need to talk about or worry about. And even though he's paying back, like, you know, a lot of debt and a lot of, you know, people, he seems to have more money um because any any can plan for it you know if he knows that we're gonna you know go for a meal or you know we're not we don't, we're not big spenders as a couple but you know he knows that he can have that money available if we've if we've planned it and he's accounted for it so I just it just feels a lot more freeing to be honest in terms of like what we can do um I say the second big thing is just like that sense of community and I think that's something Ryan's really struggled with in terms of like, he often says that he doesn't feel like he's got many friends. Um, and I think the friends that he did have, as I mentioned, are, you know, maybe poker players or, or people that he's bet with in the village. Um, so I think finding like that, that online community um, has been massive. And as I say, like, you know, I think for affected others, you know, I don't, I don't always know the answers or I don't always know what advice to give him, but it's really nice to be able to say, well, like, go chat to Chris. Or go chat to, you know, whoever from the online community. And um, it, it it makes things feel easier, I think, for myself as well, just to know that there are other people that care about him and other people that, that have answers or, or have advice. But just having those friendships, I think, is so, so valuable and, and so, so important. And I know that Ryan's really looking forward to, to meeting people as well once once the pandemic's kind of gradually gradually over hopefully well totally that is the big thing isn't it you know it has it has been a lot of online stuff at the moment and obviously i've met people and ryan has met people on some of the big steps and and that kind of stuff but there's a lot of people we haven't met yet and i can't wait to i really really can't wait but you're absolutely right i mean yeah me and ryan might do this podcast together and we do it for kish and tracy and there's the much wider community who we talk to but you know people don't see what goes on behind the scenes and you know we are all going on on our recovery journeys and we do have days when we need help and it's wonderful to have so many people to talk to i used to have people in my ga group to talk to and i still do but like my network now is just so much bigger and so many more people who've had so many different types of relationships with gambling talking about ryan and and his um old poker friends you know he's now got a load of ex-poker playing partner friends and that's great that's really really good you know uh, thinking Jordan particularly up at Dill Me Out you know he loved playing poker and I know them to chat a lot and get on really really well and and what you say as well it's actually great for the affected other to know that the gambler has that support because it can it can make it easier easier for you but one thing I do want to mention Rosa is the video that you did for Ryan um, when he got to his one year off of off of gambling it was absolutely wonderful and it just showed how proud you must be of him and and, you know, and so many people wanting to get involved with that as well. I mean, how did you come up with the idea? Why did you want to do it? And and how, how did you find kind of interacting with the people who are on that video? Yeah, I mean, I knew I knew I had to do some things, you know, what I mean, I knew I knew how big that year was for him. And he'd kind of mentioned that it was coming up. And I was like, yeah, I know I need to do something. But like, really, what can you do like in, in a pandemic situation? And I thought, you know what, let's 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 get let's get people that Ryan cares about involved. I'm not really a pro at like video editing or anything, but I had recently been a facilitator on like a long and complicated, but I'd been a, on a programme which brought Israelis, Palestinians and British young people together 
through the medium of filmmaking. So whilst I'm not a filmmaker, I'd actually been on that training. So I thought, you know what, let me try and like use some of those skills that I've picked up and, and bring people together. And work's been quite busy recently. So I probably, I would have wanted to give myself a little bit longer. So I think it got to like the week before and I was like, you know what, I need to, I need to get on this. So, but what I will say is that the people that I did manage to reach out to, the speed in which people responded and the enthusiasm in which people kind of got back to me was astounding. And I think I really got that sense of of community that Ryan's a part of because, you know, I think, you know, even though I would say I vaguely know yourself and, and Kish and, and people from the podcast, there's people that I've only heard their names but try to kind of track people down through Twitter. It wasn't quite as easy as I thought it would be because not everyone's um, DMs were open. So I was manically trying to like add people, DM people, get through people via other people. But yeah, as I say, that the, the response was staggering. And like, yeah, it really didn't take much editing at all because I think everything that everyone said was so powerful and so important. And I thought you needed to hear it all. What was interesting about it though is Ryan did leave me stressed a little bit during the day because I got my last kind of um, bit of, you know, speech through in the morning. So I thought, right, I'll just add that in and I'll send it straight to him. So I sent it to Ryan as a wee transfer link, probably at about 11 o'clock in the morning. And I didn't hear anything back from him. And I was like, oh, no, maybe he doesn't like it. Maybe it's like really awkward. Maybe I've done the complete wrong thing. But I went and saw him in the evening. and I said, oh, what did you think of the video? And he was like, what, what video? And he hadn't clicked the link at all. And I was like, oh my goodness, like, I've been sat here stressing. So um, yeah, I played him the video and honestly, he, he yeah, he was in, he was in tears quite, quite soon on. I think Kish had done his opening sentence and he was like, what's this? And no, I think it, it meant a lot to him. So, so thank you to everyone that, that got involved because it really did mean a lot. Definitely. It was magical. It really, really was. And I shared it with a load of people who obviously have no idea who Ryan is because I was just like, look, this is, this is why people who have gambled, look for recovering, find recovering, this is what you can have. And it's just so wonderful to see um, you being so proud of him. And you know, it's a lovely video. It's a lovely, lovely video. And it made me um, have a, shed a few tears as well, to be honest. So it really, really was a beautiful thing to do. And now it's nearly time to start wrapping up. And I, and I guess, you know, we are just over a year down the line now. So the future, Rosa, what, what, what do you think that looks like for yourself and Ryan? And, you know, obviously we could say everything's going to be bright and rosy, but obviously he's still in recovery. So, you know, what what, what, do, what do you think it means? Um, oh, For Ryan, I think, you know, like just a con- continuation of, you know, what he's doing in the podcast and, and stuff like Talk Gen is like really important. Um, I think he gets a lot out of having like a purpose. Um, and I think keeping busy has been really, really good for him. Um we've been able to talk a lot more openly about our future and what we want. You know, we've been living apart for for quite a few years now. So looking towards, you know, how we might go about living together, whether that's that's buying somewhere or, or renting anything really. Um, but I think a little bit, a little bit later down the line, we'll need to seek some financial advice just to see kind of what's, what's possible for us because obviously our, our situations are quite different um in that regard but yeah i hope i hope it brings us a lot of happiness i think just the ability to talk about things has has been one of the hugest things that this year's brought because like if you imagine trying to have some of these conversations without talking openly about money is really really difficult 
but I think this year's kind of like Ryan's told me a lot more about what he wants and and looking to the future um I know we both want to travel as well uh, if we can so hopefully some some holidays as well um in the pipeline uh Covid allowing <laughs> I suppose but yeah I guess finally for Ryan just just finding I'd like him to find something you know, aside from from what he's doing around, you know, addiction recovery, I think that's going to be really important for him moving forward in terms of just like having people locally that he can he can see and just having having some sort of hobby that isn't purely focused on this. I think I think will be really good for him. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's it's really important to have that balance in life, isn't it? And as much as this is fantastic and incredible and I think you're right, he does need this purpose. It's very important to have other things out there as well to do just to just to be like everybody else in the world, having some hobbies and having some things you enjoy. But Rosa, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a really, really, really wonderful conversation. And Ryan's a very, very lucky guy. It's the truth. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, it's been great to chat and it's, yeah, it really got me thinking as well. Good stuff, good stuff. Well, for all our listeners now, we're going to go to an advert. And when we return, Ryan will be chatting to both of my brothers, uh, Mike and Ian, about my gambling addiction, my alcohol addiction, what it meant for us and um, what my recovery has been all about so far. So stick with us and see you after the break. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. The All Bets Are Off podcast is brought to you in association with Gamban and they've teamed up with Gamcare and Gamstop to formulate TalkBan Stop. The Talk Ban Stop campaign offers a trio of free tools to prevent gambling harm. With support via Gamcare's National Gambling Helpline, free Gamban blocking software and Gamstop self-exclusion. Head to www.talkbanstop.com for more information. Talk Ban Stop is only available in the UK, but to block your devices from accessing gambling sites and apps, you can get Gamban at gamban.com or on the App Store or Play Store, wherever you are in the world. Now now though, it's time to get back into the pod. Thank you to Chris and Rosa and welcome back to part two of today's show in which I'm going straight into the recording with Chris's two brothers, Mike and Ian. Let's do this. Firstly, uh, Mike and Ian, I'd like to welcome you both to the podcast and I'm really looking forward to hearing all about your relationship with your older brother, Chris, and how, in your opinion, did his gambling and alcohol abuse impact him, his relationship with you and the wider family and any differences that you may have seen in him since he found recovery? I guess the most obvious place to start is with you, Mike, as you're only around 18 months younger than Chris, and so I'm guessing growing up, you two would have been super, super close. Can you describe what that relationship was like? Yeah, it was awesome. Um, you know, best friends type stuff. We, we, you know, we grew up, we, we played the same sports. We played for the same sports teams. Now, we played for the same clubs, but I ended up playing in the same age groups as, as Chris was always playing in. So, we, you know, we had a really close relationship. We We'd be out in the garden all the time. You know, the, the centre of our garden became like a, a, a cricket pitch, you know, because we were just out there all of the time. And we were really, really close. It was when Chris got to kind of 13, 14, he looked, you know, he looked like a man. So, you know, he, he then started socialising with like some older friends and stuff as well, kind of older brothers of, of friends. Then he started going out a bit more, I guess, and kind of started getting involved a bit more kind of socially in, in, in going out to pubs or drinking around people's houses. So... I guess at that point he he kind of spent more time out than he had done. But, you know, while we were kind of growing up to early teenagers, you know, we, we spent lots and lots of time together and 
and they really, really close bond. And uh, throughout his teenage, well, mid-teens and late teens, you know, as I kind of got a bit older and I was able to go out with them as well, uh, we, we shared groups of friends. Um, lots of our friends kind of a similar situation to us, you know, all the younger brothers within, you know, a year or two. So we mixed a lot. So, yeah, really, really, really close. And I, I don't think, you know, you couldn't really get much closer. Did you share Did you share clothes and stuff or were you the more fashionable one? No. So when we were younger, I was the fat one. Chris has taken that mantra um, and, and that position. Um, but we couldn't do hand-me-downs because I couldn't get into them. And now we can't do hand-me-downs because I'll be out of sleep in them. Um, so, <laughs> so we've not, we've not ever been able to really share, share clothes, but you know, we, we, we did everything else together. You know, we had a, we had an awesome relationship going to football. Um, like I say, playing sports together, we, we did everything. So yeah, great relationship as kids. Yeah. And no, I can certainly appreciate that. I'm only two and a half years younger than, than my older brother. And, uh, so obviously we had that sort of tight bond as well when, when we were younger and there was only two of us as well. So, uh, so yeah, obviously there were times, uh, where, you know, we'd end up in a bit of a ruckus and whatnot, but, uh, that's, uh, to be expected. And for you, Ian, your arrival into the world was far off the pace, given your age gap between your older brothers. Um, what was that like for you growing up and just how much influence would you say that your, both of your brothers, uh, had in shaping uh, the laws of the land I guess you might say and uh, perhaps preparing you for uh, what to expect at certain junctures yeah totally um I loved having two sort of much older brothers growing up I would always spend my weekends watching them play football on the weekends and going to the football with them and my dad I remember you know going to their school sports days when they were at secondary school and me as a whatever I would have been a four-year-old five-year-old getting to hang around with sort of the older kids etc uh, and I was lucky that my two brothers always really looked after me uh, they always got me involved with bits and bobs we used to go and watch them playing cricket on the weekends and you know when they weren't out on the pitch they were playing with me on the side of the pitch uh, so I think once again we've always had a, a really really close uh, relationship growing up no doubt, I definitely looked up to my brothers. Uh, they were both great sportsmen. I went on to go to the same school as they did. Uh, within the school, they both had a good reputation. Uh, so I had that to sort of live up to, uh, which I liked. And I felt like they both set me on, you know, on a good path uh, with things that I wanted to achieve to achieve myself. So, yeah, it was great. Loved it. I'm glad that other thing, I know your father's been on, on the podcast before, um, but I'm glad that there's someone else because I thought it might have just been a fatherly sort of thing and <laughs> bigging Chris up when he was talking about his sporting prowess and stuff. But I'm pleased that you said it. It was uh, a bit more legitimacy to that. <laughs> um, but obviously, knowing Chris quite well, obviously, I've been working with him for a bit of time now and uh, know his story and, and such. He began drinking in his adolescence and by the time he was 18, 19, he was out most nights. Now, from your two's perspectives, when did you start to realise that he had a problematic relationship with alcohol and what sort of impact would you say that had on your relationships with him? So I, I, I wouldn't say that anywhere it kind of, probably until he was, oh, I don't know, maybe in his 30s, I would say it felt problematic. He always loved it. Do you know what I mean? It was always, you know, it, it, but he just liked the taste of it. Where other people would drink socially, Chris just loved the taste of of, of alcohol. And, and where he was, you know, 
quite a common drinker. He became quite a tolerant drinker as well. So, you know, he, he, he drank a lot and it just became part of, part of the social life. And, uh, but I've always liked to drink when I go out and I think, you know, Ian will tell you what, that he's, what you know, that he likes to drink as well, I'm sure. But I think the difference is, is that we drink more when we're out and we're socializing and Chris would drink at home. And I think that's when it's, it became more apparent to us was that, you know, it was that drinking out of social um, circles. It was the more drinking on his own. I think that was a bit of a telltale sign that he, he was possibly doing it for another reason other than kind of letting his hair down. Do you know what I mean? And I think, I think it, but it, it was only into his, probably into his thirties. I've got the best memory by the way, but in, in, in <laughs> I just can't put time scales to anything. But in, in his um in his thirties, I think it it kind of became a bit more apparent, and he he won't mind me saying this, I don't think. But you know, when he was, you know, when we had that childhood relationship, he you know he was he was the natural athlete. You know, at, at twelve, thirteen years old, he was five foot nine, five foot ten, and skinny, and I'd have been ten years old, and I was four foot nine and thirteen stone. So I certainly, you know, I certainly wasn't aerodynamic like like Chris, but. You could tell then that kind of the weight started to pile on and he just became less interested in some of the other things. You know, he gave up cricket and things quite young, although he was really talented. He just walked away from them for for socialising. And eventually he just, you almost started to see that he started to care less about himself. You know, maybe it was when the kids... It was a bit like, a bit like Smithy from uh, Gavin and Stacey or something. <laughs> uh I don't really know who to compare him to, um, but he just—I don't know—he just seemed to find it a bit more challenging when when he, you know, his kids came along. You know, Chris will speak openly about you know his kids have have got autism, and and it doesn't make for doesn't make for the easiest environment. And I think you know for the first few years of their lives, the children's lives, they 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 didn't realise that you know, kind of what they were dealing with, and it be, it was harder before they found kind of how to how to deal with it. And I think all those things started to contribute to, to him drinking for different reasons. Mm. And Ian, I wanted to bring you in the into the conversation because, I mean, what Mike was saying there is I can certainly relate to, you know, I'm a social drinker. Uh, in fact, I can't, apart from Christmas, and even then I don't really drink that much, I can't really recall too many times where I've actually drunk at home. Um, and... Um, do you think that there was maybe for Mike, he saw it maybe when he was in around the 30 mark, perhaps because that's when you start maybe to grow up a little bit. So maybe he did, maybe Chris did have a problem up until that point, but it wasn't really recognizable because he was in his 20s enjoying himself, but he, he could have had a problem. I think, I mean, me personally, I, I probably had a bit of a different relationship with Chris in his kind of probably after he got married. So like mid twenties through to early thirties than what Mike did, because Mike met who's now his wife um, and they've now got two children, etc. Whereas me being the younger brother, I was still living in Brentwood where Chris was living um, for a large chunk of this. I was young. I was out. I was about, I was free. So I actually used to see Chris quite a bit in sort of a, a drinking social situation uh, whether that be he messaged me on a Sunday to say, do you want to go to the pub and watch the football? Or we've both got a big interest in music um, and we'd go to a number of gigs together. 
or to different sort of live events and we'd have kind of, yeah, an, an all-day session as such. I definitely started to notice Chris's relationship with alcohol in those environments were different to mine. Um, I Don't get me wrong, I do love, I love a drink. I love going out on a Saturday and watching the football and having a beer. But I found that towards the end, the events were more about the beer than the event, if you know what I mean. So if you're going to see a gig, it was more about how early can we meet and how much can we pack in before we get to the gig, which I did start to notice. And it did take me back a little and I was aware of it. And I think once I became aware of it, I did see the fact that Chris was drinking more when I'd nip round on a Tuesday night to see my niece and nephew at home. Um, or like I say, on a kind of a, a nothing Sunday football game, he'd want to go to the pub, you know, and watch Burnley Norwich because it was an excuse to have six pints. And I started to almost probably steer away from that. Whether that was intentional or not, I'm not too sure. Uh, but I would say, again, I'd, around the same age, what Michael said, I'd say it's probably around that kind of 30 mark, so maybe seven, eight, nine years ago. Uh, that it started to become evident with Chris. God, I, I remember one. I remember one event. I guess that kind of made me worry more than any other time was you know Chris had been out with his friends and he had he had his son with him, and I was driving back home and I think I was talking to him for some reason, and I ended up to go. I ended up going via the pub Chris was in to find his son asleep underneath a table in the pub while he and his friends were were drinking, and I was like, Chris. Are you going to take him home, or do you want me to take him home? And he was like, "Are you taking him home?" So I, you know, I picked my nephew up and I took him home. And I can't quite remember how how old he was, but you know, that's probably six years ago. That type of type of time scale, and that you know, for me, that was really worrying. And now I'm a dad of a you know a four year old and a and a seven month old. I can I just can't see how I could get myself into that situation where I wouldn't be able to look after my kid yeah and no, i totally appreciate that and yeah that negligence i'm sure from chris's perspective it's something that he looks back on now and and is really uh, ashamed of and i wanted to go on to the to the gambling i mean we are a, a gambling addiction specifically a recovery podcast and that didn't really manifest with chris until uh, again it was around 30 and in my show notes chris talks about going to visit a casino with you ian and that he couldn't ha- understand how responsible you were being uh, which to be honest is the exact same reaction i have to people as a compulsive gambler as um you know people that are gambling responsibly you know it's a really alien concept to me so i do understand where it's coming from there now other than this particular visit to the casino did either or both of you ever gamble with chris as a as a you know it's a, it's a valid form of entertainment if done res- responsibly and if so what sort of behaviors did he exhibit so for me not really Growing up as a kid, he hated anything to do with arcades, fruit machines, those types of things. Um, I used to like them. I used to enjoy them. You know, dad would take us down, mum and dad would take us down to South End every now and again. And I'd be the one wanting bags and bags of 2p coins and 10p coins and sticking them in, you know, for the machine, seeing if I can get, you know, something back out. You didn't care what it was at that age. And I, you know, I, when we used to go drinking in the in the pub kind of between kind of school and university type ages i used to like playing on the fruit machines you know there was a couple i almost used to almost see it as my my beer money for the evening because it, it, it seemed to have quite a good success rate with it but 
Chris wouldn't even engage. I mean, he wouldn't even stand next to you with his drink and, and, and watch you. He just had no interest. So I, I can't say that I ever really noticed it. But thinking back on things, there became a time when he started to put money on the, the weirdest accumulators. And I can't, you know, I can't put a lot of detail to it because I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. But just thinking back on, on reflection, you know, why are you gambling on on teams playing football in Lithuania that you've never heard of? You know, I, I've got no idea because, you you know, you might have a fiver on your team or if you're a West Ham fan like me, you might have a fiver on the other team because, you know, at least one way you, you'll be all right at the end of the day. Um, but no, I never, so, I, so I never saw it. I really never saw him. I've never been to a casino with Chris. Um, from my side, it's interesting. Like obviously, you mentioned or Chris mentioned that time he and I went to a casino because I'm pretty sure that's the only time we ever went to a casino together. And interestingly, I remember just before that day, he let slip to me. I think we met for a beer on a weekend prior to it, and he'd said how he'd won. I want to say it was, you know, at least a thousand pounds, if not, if not more than that, because he went to pay for something we were at. And he's had a wad of cash, which is very unlike Chris. And I said, you know, where, where's that come from? He went, oh, I won fifteen hundred quid in the casino the other day. And then, as he'd had a few beers, he mentioned that he kept it in the drawer by his bed. So it never went in the bank or anything like that. I don't know whether his wife knew or anything like that, but he said that he'd had this big win. Two, three weeks later, we were going to a gig and we planned to meet early and the plan was have some lunch, go for some drinks, go to the gig. Chris suggested meeting in the casino, but marketed it as uh, having a good sports bar at the time. So we went to the casino, Aspen's in uh, in Stratford. And I remember getting in there and being shocked at how much, how desperate Chris was to get to the tables, I suppose is a fair way of doing it. Now I probably gambled or have bet more than Mike I definitely went through a phase, even up until a couple of years ago, and I think obviously seeing what happened to Chris definitely steered me away from it. I was never betting more than maybe a fiver at a time on a Saturday, mostly if I was going to the pub with friends and the results were coming in. It made it a bit interesting if West Ham weren't playing. And I'd occasionally put a you know a bet on the boxing if we were watching a fight or if it was a Gold Cup day and we were watching it in a pub, I would put a bet on. But it was never anything sort of too serious. This day in the casino... Half hour in, hour in, I was like, come on, let's, you know, let's go now. So I actually went to find Chris and I saw him sitting at the table. I want to say it was roulette he was playing. And I just remember seeing how much money he was putting down. And I knew that Chris wasn't in a position to be putting that money down. I think he lost about £250, which is a lot of money to lose. But I kind of wiped it from my memory. I didn't think anything of it. Came away from there. Uh, The rest of the day went on. And uh, that was that. But that, for me, looking back on it, was probably a bit of an alarm bell, which I never <clears throat> myself picked up on too much. But then I do wonder whether maybe Chris noticed how I was that day in the casino, that I wasn't particularly interested. Um, I may have said something about how much money he lost. Uh, and hence, that maybe is why we didn't go back there. But that day definitely yeah. sticks in my memory. But then I don't ever remember, beyond that particularly, Christopher talking to me about gambling or nipping into the bookies or anything like that. Yeah, it's interesting. 
Uh, very, very interesting. I know, I know uh, Asper's Casino quite well. I used to play a lot of uh, a lot of poker in there with, uh, as well. And listening to Mike, I, I love the arcade as a as a kid. It was certainly one of my vices into the into the gambling world. I feel uh, playing the cat D machines and whatnot. And I think that really kicked things off when I was when I was younger. Um, at its very worst, what did Chris's drinking and gambling addictions do to your relationships with him? I know obviously we've just spoken about um, maybe the calm before the storm, so to speak. And obviously, you know, the the, the, the major happenings happened a, a few years later. Uh, but yeah, what, what was the um, what was the, the, the big impact that it had on, on your relationship with him and, and the family as a whole? So I think that I think they were different because one, I think you've just picked up from what me and Ian have both said, we could see that Chris was drinking. So on a daily basis, you could, there was probably a longer, a longer impact of that. I think he became more introvert and less interested in kind of events and engaging in things. So, you know, we, we went from, you know, those, that really close bond to, you know, not seeing each other as much, not going to the same events. And, you know, it was, it, it, it clearly, did reduce how much we saw each other and, and the relationship that we had. Whereas the gambling, like the impact for me was, you know, when I found out first time round how much what he'd done, how much he'd lost, and this was before you know we understood addiction. You know, certainly I'm no expert on it now, but you know you appreciate it for an illness as opposed to a, a you know a regretful behaviour, I, I guess. But the first instinct is, you know, you idiot. What what have you done? Because, you know, that's, you know, we're, we're, we're lucky. You know, I, our mum and dad have, have done well and, you know, through really hard work, have bailed him out. But then you kind of think, well, what's the consequences on them? That's the first thing that came to my mind. And then secondly, it's kind of, well, what have you put at risk for your kids? And and kind of that's that's the other thought that came to mind. Um, but like I said, because it wasn't an, a thing that I'd seen as a problem, it didn't cause me a day to day issue. It was just or our relationship day to day issue. It was it was that event that you then kind of you know I don't know the right way to to phrase it. Really, it's hard to you know I haven't really talked about how I felt about it with anyone before. But it kind of, kind of annoyed me a bit because you know it put mum and dad in a position. And you could see how upset they were. And no no one likes to see their, their kind of parents upset. I wanted to ask you a question around that, actually. Um, well, and, and the floor's open to both. But as harsh as, as it seems, and, and the reason why I'm asking this question is because I, similar, maybe not from a brotherly perspective, but there are members of my family, for example, that um, because I've stolen money and such before, uh, that no longer speak to me uh, purely because of what I've done. And, you know, that that's... Fine. I hope at some point they'll come around and start to understand about the addiction and such. But would you say, uh, as harsh as it sounds, would you say that you lost respect for him a little bit uh, as a, as a brother and someone that you should, in theory, be able to lean on and you know provide you with support and guidance as the as the eldest? Um, maybe not respect, but maybe trust, because I remember, mum, you know, mum and dad went travelling for a, for a period of time. They. You know, they they love going abroad. It's one of the things they've been able to do since since Dad retired, and they had you know they asked me to come round to take keys, bank cards, this that and the other, you know, and all the things that you shouldn't worry about leaving in your own home. That 
you know, you'd be worried to leave there because it was an opportunity for Chris. Now, I can't remember whether that was after his first, kind of the first time that he kind of admitted it or whether it was later on. But it was that kind of thing that just, I just felt a bit sad about it all. Um, and it was, like I say, it was probably trust more than more than respect. And although he's, you know, he's, he's older, you know, once you get through your kids, you know, being kids together, 18 months is nothing, isn't it? So we kind of, I don't think I've ever kind of talked to him about, you know, what's, what's the right thing for me to do to do in life? Um, so we've kind of not had that type of relationship. I haven't gone for advice type of stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I just guess it's it was it was respect rather. Than, sorry, it was it was not a lack of respect, but lack of trust. I think. Yeah, I think I think the big one that Michael said for me out of this whole thing was, which is an understanding of addiction, um, which again, you know, I. I definitely understand more so now than I did again, even maybe 18 months ago, two years ago, particularly with all sort of the good work that Chris has put into recent times with trying to help himself and help others. But I think my big initial feeling was, why have you done this? You know, what what about the kids? What about mum and dad? Um, like Mike said, we are lucky that mum and dad, through hard work, were in a position to be able to help Chris. And if they weren't there, who knows what what would have happened. But then equally, seeing how hard it hits mum and dad is is really tough to deal with. Um, There's, you know, dad worked and mum. Mum works very, very, very hard bringing us three up. Um, And, you know, my recollection of dad working as as a youngster was dad walking out the door before I got up and dad getting home just before I got to bed five days a week, possibly going in on weekends, answering calls or whatever time. And that allowed him to, you know, retire at a good age and have a good chunk of life ahead, I suppose, to enjoy with mum and with grandkids and these sort of things. So I think my initial response when I heard that obviously they were helping Chris out was, well, thank God they're able to help Chris out. But also, yeah, what's what's that going to mean for them now? Are they still going to be able to do the things that, you know, I think they deserve to do? Um, and totally, that gives you a feeling of, I don't know the word. I want to say it's, it's not resentment towards Chris because it's, these things aren't necessarily Chris doing them. You know, as I said, it's, 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 it's an illness. It's, a, it's an addiction. Probably came across a little bit selfish, Perhaps if you don't yeah. understand the addiction. Yeah, totally, totally. I think that's probably the way of doing it. And I think with that, it definitely built up a little bit of a barrier for me just because I didn't like seeing my mum and dad upset and I didn't like seeing my mum and dad maybe not able to enjoy things that I thought that they would like to enjoy, more so than anything else. And and for you, Mike, your first daughter, Lizzie, entered the world at a time when Chris was really struggling towards the the latter end of his addiction to gambling. And obviously it's clear to see he regrets, uh, he has regrets about not being there for the early part of her life. Uh, at that time, was there any engagement with Chris at all? I, I suspect that you probably had your, your own things to, 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 to take care of. Uh, or, or was it simply a case of waiting for him to hit his rock bottom and sort of, you know, help himself out as well, um, uh, respectfully. Yeah, I guess, um, so he's great with kids and he loves kids. But he wasn't in a place where he was engaging. Do you know what I mean? He he wouldn't jump in his car and pop around and, and see her. 
and that you know there's something going on because when he when he's with the kids they love him and and he loves he loves them you can see and you know nowadays I mean, because of you know obviously the world we're living in at the moment he's you know we've lost he's lost the opportunity with my with my second daughter as, as well as well really but you know we were fortunate we saw each other in the garden yesterday or the day before and you could see you know he was he was really engaged and he, you know he wants to hold and he wants to kind of be an active uncle but he he hasn't been an active uncle do you know what i mean because he has had his his own problems to to sort out and it, i i bet he you know i suspect he probably regrets it a bit and it's something that he he won't get back i mean i'm sure he will build that relationship with them going forward because they talk about you know well they they don't um the one he can talk does um the seven month old doesn't talk about him yet um <laughs> but but lizzie does um and you know talks about him really fondly so they will build they will build that bond back i'm i'm sure as chris is kind of in a in a happier more more settled place but you know i i never confronted him about it and you know and 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 because like I say, I can't remember the timescales now, but you know that he's going through something and something that you don't understand, and he needs to he needs to deal with it himself because you know first time round when he wasn't using the support networks that he he uses now and, and seems to be really central to at the moment, you know he relied on on dad very much to help him with his financial planning and. My God, that must have been a hard slog on the lack of money that he had to to run a house and a and, and a household, and he got through it. And I mean, for me, I, I can't, that's why I can't understand. If you were if you were in kind of right mind and it was a logical thing, he would never have done it again because what he had to go through to then to have done it again, it was it was quite clear that you know he he had to find his own way of of getting himself through it. You can't do it. You can't do it for him. You just have to support him and listen to him and under, and understand him and let him find his own path, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, that's tip-top advice um, for anyone that's listening to the podcast that is contemplating entering recovery and uh, and uh, understanding family dynamic and, and the best way to go about things. And starting to wrap things up a, a little bit, obviously I want to talk about the good stuff. Um, both of you attended Open GA meetings to see Chris pick up his, uh, his pins for not gambling. Firstly, um, from an outsider's perspective, I hope you don't mind me saying that, uh, from an outsider's perspective, how was this experience for both of you? And did this help you understand his addiction any more than what you did prior to that? So I went to his, I think it was his second year pin that I went to. Um, it wasn't just listening to Chris, it was listening to the other people in the room that kind of... Uh, really helped understand i think it's probably fair to say that i didn't feel that comfortable about kind of going at, at the time you know I, I didn't get there on my own and go running in and find myself a seat and you know i, I hovered around outside and i, I waited to yeah they, they don't have like they don't have like uh popcorn and candy floss sellers in there or anything no absolutely <laughs> so you know so I was a bit, you know, reluctant to what I was walking into because it was it was an unknown. But the first thing that struck me was everyone in the room looked normal. If, you know, I probably passed all of the people in that room on the high street, and and it's not been, 
you know, it's not been the person who looks, you know, homeless and you know, hasn't had a, you know, haven't had a wash for a couple of weeks. It, that that's the image that a lot of people, I guess, have of people with addictions. It wasn't that at all. You know, there were people there in suits. There were people there who come straight from work. There were people there with families. So it just kind of hit me quite, quite vividly how how this was happening to normal people and, and destroying normal people's lives. And then to actually hear Chris speak, he was more open in that forum than I think I'd ever hear him speak about his own emotions. You know, and that was that was quite striking, I think. Um, left me feeling a, a little guilty because I do, I do always wonder if when Chris had started picking up drinking again, because he, d- he did have a little period of time when he kind of had given it up. And if I'd have spotted him picking it up and, and challenged him on it a little bit, maybe, or supported him a little bit, would it, could we have stopped, you know, his second big relapse on his gambling happening? I don't think we could have done that. Actually, I don't think it would have been the right thing to have stopped him, actually, because I still don't think he'd have, maybe he wouldn't have peaked or peaked or hit rock bottom, whichever way you want to kind of describe it, for yeah, him yeah, to yeah. kind of then engage in, in the therapy and, and the journeys that he's on now. Um and I don't think he would be where he is now without that support network. For sure. What about you, uh, Ian? How did you find that room? Yeah, I mean, I went I went to Chris's first year pin. And yeah, much like Michael said, I think the first big impact is actually how many faces are recognised in there for the same reason. It was at a time where, I, you know, I hadn't left living at home with parents maybe a year before that. So I still spent a lot of time in the area. And there was there was three faces in there that I recognised just from you know around as such. Um, and like Mike said, these you know they're in suits. They've just hopped off the train from the city on their way home from work. Some of them were in their early twenties. Some of them were in their sixties. Male, female, um, you know, a, a real mix. The two big things from that meeting that stuck out for me. Um, Chris spoke at that meeting too. Um, and again, like Mike said, it's the first time I'd ever heard him openly speak in person about his addiction um, and how he truly felt about it. I know he spoke about the impact that he felt he had had on family. And that was a, that definitely gave a big notch of respect from me to him, I think. Um, opened my eyes towards him to sort of understand him a little bit more. But the really nice thing I remember taking from that meeting actually was seeing how much everyone liked Chris in that room. Everyone was speaking to him. He was speaking to everyone. And I felt like he'd found you know, a community that he was part of, um, that he could relate to, that he felt happy talking to. Um, And we all know a big part of his problems that he couldn't talk before. So... More than anything, I suppose it was it was quite reassuring going to that meeting. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, you hit the nail on the head how dis- indiscriminate this uh, particular uh, addiction is. And I can totally, uh, I remember going into my first GA meeting and uh, I was expecting to see what Mike, I think, described there, you know, low lives and stuff like that, you know, and, and what I think was typically prescribed, you know, through television or, or or whatever so now I, I totally get that and uh yeah you're right Ian in terms of the uh in terms of Chris comes into his own in this particular community he uh he really does and he's a, a beacon of life and I, I wanted to sort of um one one last point really before we uh, do wrap up uh, along with GA um 
what do you think doing the podcast and talk gen i don't know where they've spoken to you about that what do you think that that has done for chris and what are the noticeable changes in his behaviors and how he inter interacts with you guys and and other family members for that matter i think it's a it's a real sense of purpose that he's given him um gives him something to think about and to, to focus on and i you know he's a really caring person that's that's why he gets on so well with kind of kids when he's when he's himself you know um he's really caring so i think he just wants to help people now and i think it's become a bit of a vocation for him and i think actually you know i, I would i would love to think someday that he will find himself a career through it to be honest because i think it's where he's it's where his passion is i work in i work in health and kind of population health is is a is a huge thing and the kind of the wider determinants of health and you talk about people's kind of ability to, to have settled home and to um to have good jobs good education and all those things and people always talk about smoking eating healthily drinking very few people that i've heard in that field yet talk about gambling so i think there's a bit of a niche there for an, an opportunity so I, I could really see him kind of forging something really positive for him for himself um, and positive for, for others in, in that space, I guess. And that's that's what I want for him now is that he, he can achieve some positive out of what's been a, it's been a really, really tough time and something that, you know, maybe, uh, Ian will speak about this in a minute, maybe, I don't know if you'll say it, but do you feel a little bit embarrassed in social circles when people start saying, how's oh, your brother doing and that? A little, you know, not 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 much because you recognise what, what it's for, but, you know, He's turning that into a feeling of being proud, as a rather than embarrassed. So he's you're kind of he's really turning that whole thing around. Yeah, I think two things. One thing that Michael said, and one thing you asked Ryan. Um, actually, the social circle part's really interesting now. Is I do find myself. I've told you know I've got I've got, I'm lucky to have a good friendship group myself, and they all know what Chris has been through because you know you talk to your mates about things, and I find now that when they do ask. It's, it's great to be able to turn around and say, he's doing well, he's set up this, that, he's involved with this and that. Um, you know, things like the uh, family day going on at Billericay in July. Um, he's really, you know, he's, yeah, he is, he's making something good come from it and sort of, you know, long may it continue as such. And the other part you picked up on, Ryan, was what's, have we noticed any difference with how Chris is now <clears throat> relationship-wise on his demeanour with ourselves or family members. Uh, I definitely, less so now than I used to, um, just due to work and travel and everything else, I used to pop round and see Chris and my niece and nephew most weeks, really. Um, and I still, you know, do my best to see them when I can. And uh, the big thing I have noticed, probably over the last, definitely the last 18 months or so, is how much more tolerant I suppose Chris is with the kids um and how much more relaxed he is around them rather than getting that hear, kind you of should hear him like, usually when we're recording Ian and if they burst in um certainly not tolerant then that's <laughs> for sure <laughs> maybe maybe he just puts it on for me but uh it's it's good to see because he does you know it's not that instant boom response that short temper which I assume came with him being occupied with other things uh, previously, uh, he's a lot, you know, he's a lot more tolerant with it now, uh, relaxed with it now. And I think, you know, it's quite evident to see the kids respond to it as well. 
Uh, and there's no doubt that he's a great dad uh, and he's great with his kids and his kids love being with him. But I definitely think in recent times, since, you know, since he's addressed the issues and he's addressing the issues, uh, he's definitely got a much, I'd say, yeah, a nicer, nicer way, a nicer relationship with those kids, which I think is obviously just going to keep growing stronger um, and it'll be a great thing for him. Brilliant. That's uh, great to hear. And I'm sure Chris will be really pleased to hear that. Like me, he's, a, he's an emotional person and he's he's likely to listen in and be crying with tears of joy about the transition uh, that you guys and others have seen in him since those dark times. And for you, Ian, I've heard you're going to be a father soon. Is, is that right? Yes. Yep. Due date, July the 5th, number one. So uh, looking forward to it. Brilliant. Well, uh, I wish you all all the very best, and it's been a real pleasure speaking with you uh, with you both today and hearing about your journeys and uh, and thoughts uh, around Chris's addiction and subsequent recovery journey from both uh, gambling and alcohol. Uh, and I really feel that if there's someone out there listening to this, contemplating a life without gambling, and they do hear this, they themselves may come to realise that there is. Uh, like not only for them but for their loved ones too so uh, thank you and uh, thank you for taking the time to to share all of that with us today awesome. cheers Ryan. yeah great thank you and that pretty much concludes today's show and indeed season three of the all bets are off podcast now as i said at the top of the show this episode is not about us it's about the difference in people as they evolve throughout their recovery journey and what our friends family and work colleagues see in us the positive changes that they see in us and just how much it means to them if anyone is out there listening to this and going through a bit of a tough time then please remember that there is support out there many of those services are highlighted on our website and we are always talking to people who are going through a tough time of it or simply wish to unload. Our DMs are always open. In terms of the podcast and what's next, we will be taking a little bit of a break and we're not quite sure as to when we'll be back just yet. Currently, the team have a lot going on with TortGen and so our primary focus will be there at this moment in time. However, we do have thoughts about episodes that we wish to record for a would-be season four. And don't forget, on Saturday the 17th of July, we have our family fun day at Billericay Town Football Club to look forward to. And I know that many of the recovery community and indeed listeners of the podcast will be there and it's going to be an absolutely fabulous day for those based elsewhere or that simply cannot be there on the day then I know that they'll be tuning into the live stream check out our website for further information and how to purchase tickets stay tuned to our social media for future content podcasting quite possibly some more until next time take care and remain gamble free on behalf of the team peace and love to you all you've been listening to the all better off podcast to find out more about the creators of the pod then please visit our website www.allbetteroff.co.uk and don't forget to give us a follow on twitter at all better off underscore and share this podcast with others until next time stay safe and remain gamble free thank you for listening